could an audience determine whether someone was a real doctor or if someone was just really good at rhetoric, is someone really good at public speaking? And Plato said, yeah, if someone speaks really well, they would be able to convince an audience each time versus a real doctor. So trying to figure out what true expertise, true knowledge is, is an old problem. My students, you know, they get all their information online. And so without any real training on how to discern between good information and bad, oftentimes I see my students kind of floundering about how how do I know what is uh, worthwhile knowledge and what is not worthwhile knowledge. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Dr. Josh Reeves, a professor of science and religion, and the author of the book, Redeeming Expertise, Scientific Trust, and the Future of the Church. Together, we talk about expertise, science, and what it might mean to cultivate communities of critical thinking. We hope you will enjoy our conversation. And thanks again for tuning in. During the last few months, I found myself in and around hospitals more than usual. A loved one has needed multiple surgical interventions for a medical condition that, while not life-threatening, has been profoundly life-limiting. On my most recent trip to the hospital, I found myself reflecting on how helpless an ordinary person like me can feel in the face of medical conditions that I have no power to fix. Here I was, surrendering a piece of my heart to a surgeon. And why? Well, because he is a specialist. And it's because of his expertise that I was willing to trust him with something so precious to me. But it occurred to me that I was not just trusting one surgeon. This specialist is the member of a team of experts, which in turn is part of an expert institution, which is legitimized and held accountable by a community of professional medical experts. When I trust the doctor, I don't just trust the doctor. I trust an entire ecosystem composed of hard-won medical expertise. I share this because the pandemic has revealed something of a crisis of expertise, especially when it comes to public health and scientific consensus. During the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, we haven't quite known who to trust. Official channels like the Center for Disease Control began to be widely questioned. Conspiracies about the scientific and medical establishment have abounded and flourished. And while most people don't seem to have fallen for them, most of us know someone who has. Or perhaps we know someone who prides themselves on questioning everything and doing their own research, which usually begins and often ends with an internet search engine that is already calibrated by an algorithm that filters results according to past searches. In any case, trust in institutions, the scientific establishment, and expert testimony seems like it is at an all-time low. After all, it seems like an expert can be found for almost any opinion that you want to profess. So how do we know who we should trust? Which experts are trustworthy? And yet, my recent experiences with the hospital reminded me just how dependent we remain on experts. 
This is not just the case when it comes to medical interventions. Every day we need specialists to help us navigate the world. This is true whenever I fly on a plane flown by an expert pilot, whenever I use my smartphone programmed by an expert computer scientist, whenever I need a new water heater replaced by an expert plumber. Life in the modern world is nearly unlivable without regularly entrusting ourselves to the expertise of those who know what we don't know and who can do what we can't do. We could argue that this is how knowledge in general works. Much of what we call knowing is really trusting. So maybe the question is not so much who we should trust, but who are we already trusting and why? Answering this question means acknowledging that it is not just individual experts that we must decide whether to trust, but institutions too, ecosystems of expertise. Is it the case that our only choices are either blind faith in establishment experts or blind faith in popular outsiders? Is there a way, especially for those of us who have placed ultimate trust in Jesus Christ, to be intentional and responsible? about the ways we entrust ourselves to the expertise of others. Is there a way to redeem expertise? I'm joined now by two guests. First is my guest co-host, Jeff Plukstra, who is professor of biology here at Dort University. Jeff, thanks so much for hosting with me. Happy to be here. Happy to be a part of this conversation. And our feature guest is Josh Reeves, who is the Assistant Professor of Science and Religion and Director of the Samford Center for Science and Religion at Samford University. He's also the author of a new book published by Baylor University Press entitled Redeeming Expertise. Josh, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you. So Josh, you open your book with a story from a few years ago where you're teaching an intro philosophy class and you encounter this surprising a significant number of students who believed that the moon landing had been faked. And it occurred to me that a decade ago, that might've felt like an outlier, but in recent years, you're sort of like, yeah, that makes sense because we've seen widespread disagreement about which voices we can trust, whether we can trust the official narratives coming out of the establishment, uh, growing suspicion towards established sources of knowledge, especially the scientific establishment. And all of this is particularly pronounced in Christian, conservative Christian communities. And sometimes it feels to me like the choices that are presented to us are blind faith in establishment experts, a sort of, you know, trust me, I'm a doctor, uh, or blind faith in popular outsiders who will say something like, well, because the establishment has suppressed me or has rejected me, that's how you know that I'm credible. And then you also have a lot of people who are proudly declaring their independence from manipulation and bias because they do their own research. Um, and yet it seems like we're more gullible than ever. So how do we uh, make our way forward in the midst of this crisis of expertise that we're in? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. And I think it's a problem that goes back as long as people have been living in community. Uh, Plato has, uh, in one of his dialogues, a scene where uh, they're talking about could an audience determine whether someone was a real doctor or if someone was just really good at rhetoric, if someone really good at public speaking? And Plato and the, uh, the dialogue partner said, yeah, if someone speaks really well, they would be able to convince an audience each time uh, versus a real doctor. So this idea of trying to figure out what 
true expertise, true knowledge is, is an old problem. Um, I think it's really gotten worse in the 20th century because of the rise of what you might call professional science. Uh, science before, let's say, the late 1800s was often theological in nature, explicitly appealing to God uh, and theological claims. But once science becomes professionalized, becomes in some ways independent of church authority or church uh, doctrine, then a lot of Christians become wary of it. Uh, and so you see in the 20th century, the rise of alternative institutions, alternative ways of understanding knowledge. So even in the 20th century, you see um, the rise of a lot of skepticism towards expert knowledge on conservative uh, Christian side. But having said that, I do think the rise of social media has uh, accelerated it. When I went to college, you know, all the information I needed was in a library, which had been vetted by, you know, the librarians and my professors. And now my students, you know, they get all their information online. And so without any real training on how to discern between good information and bad, oftentimes I see my students kind of floundering about how, how do I know what is uh, worthwhile knowledge and what is not worthwhile knowledge. And so that has increased the polarization that we have in our society. Uh, and so you get to a point now where, you know, people on different side of an issue really live in different worlds, different intellectual worlds because of the different uh, information sources they're taking in. And, and is there a way forward with that? Or or is the, the problem sort of so intractable that we have these echo chambers of everybody has their own exp experts that they listen to? Um, what, what would be the first steps even towards moving forward in the midst of that? Well, a lot of it depends on what issue you're talking about. So, you know, the issue informs so many different, you know, questions that we have in society, especially with respect to politics. Um, but I would say with respect to Christians, um, I, I do think that uh, as Christians, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that we need stronger institutions of knowledge. Uh, most of the experts that we trust these days are experts because they have some community standing behind them, that they're, they speak on behalf of a community of knowledge. And I think oftentimes in uh, Christian communities, especially the kind that I grew up in, uh, it's distrustful of institutions. The institutions lead you astray from what a plain reading the Bible or what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach me. And so I think as Christians, if we're going to do better about uh, finding good sources of information, we're going to have to rely upon each other and the strengths of each other. You know, kind of that image of Paul in the New Testament that someone's the hand, someone's the foot. Well, if we have a high level of mistrust towards institutions, then that whole metaphor doesn't work anymore. If it's just going to be you yourself and the Bible or your own common sense, uh, then we're not going to know very well about things in the world because all our information, almost everything that we know, you know, not, not everything, but almost everything we know, you know, we take it on second hand from other people. And so if you turn the skepticism up very strongly, then you don't really know very well about uh, the world we find ourselves. I think it's interesting your your example there at the beginning of of sort of the someone who's just good at rhetoric versus an actual authentic person. Um, the only person who's 
probably going to be able to discern between those two people is actually somebody who is also an expert. And I, I found this idea of sort of uh, meta expertise or the, the ability to kind of discern who is an expert or that you write about a little bit in your book, an interesting idea of trying to teach people to have a sense of sort of meta expertise or kind of tying that together with what you're talking about right now, this community sort of orientation, there are often people who propose to be that kind of expert within, who's also the the skeptic, I guess you might say. So people who build a credibility by attending these institutions and becoming sort of experts themselves. And then sometimes they're um, tearing away at the credibility of those institutions what do we make of people who are bad actors, as I would I would sort of call them in that in that sense? Yeah, it's a difficult issue. Um, I feel like you have to be a critical consumer of expertise. A lot of what I argue in the book is that you know we're presented two options: either just totally trust experts or to think for yourself. And oftentimes, what I'm trying to help my students do is become critical consumers of expertise, trying to be able to decide what science is good at, what science can sort of deliver versus uh, the kind of questions that science struggles to answer. And so I think kind of getting to the meta expertise, helping our students, helping ourselves ask these big picture questions about you know, scientific limits, what science is good at answering is a, uh, is a good way to go forward. But you're right, there's always going to be people who come and stand on the outside and say, this is all hogwash, and they use it to build a, you know, a platform. For example, I think I talk about this in the book, you know, the way that uh, the Atkins diet, the founder of the Atkins diet, you know, sells the diet is that the reason why you can trust me is that I'm a cardiologist, I'm not a dietitian, I've never studied that. And therefore, because I have not been corrupted by that learning, I can see everything fresh. And so there's this way in which in our society, we kind of like the story of someone coming and seeing the Bible or seeing a field of knowledge completely new without having any assumptions, which I think uh, is just kind of a misleading picture of how uh, you sort of know things. I think we as a community need to help our students, help our church members recognize the misleading picture of knowledge that is going on there and be just better consumers of, of knowledge, whether it's scientific knowledge or theological knowledge. Part of what you're helping us do here is not just reframing expertise, but also placing it in this larger context of how we come to know things and showing us just how dependent we are on other people. And I'm wondering if the problem is not really with quote unquote science, uh, but maybe more the fact that we really don't like ambiguity and we are very unsettled by a body of knowledge that is constantly updating and in flux, right? How can we have the certainty that we want to have if this is all, well, they, you told us one thing one time and then you told us another thing another time. Um, but you point out that we have different levels of intellectual confidence and different sorts of expertise. And so I wonder if you could say more about that that sense just of how we come to know things and how we have different levels of confidence in different sorts of things. I think in our culture, there's often been kind of a heroic image of scientific certainty that has uh, been really prominent, especially I think you could see this in World War II, where, you know, the 
atom bomb was seen as like ending the war and saving us, saving all sorts of lives uh, in the Japanese invasion. And so I think the public consumption of science often wants certainty. And so when you come and you have, uh, you can say things with certain probability that you think is something's going to happen. Um, I think a lot of people in the public feel like, well, that's, is that really science? If it's not certain, if it doesn't give a certain result. Uh, and so um, there's a, a phrase that uh, a sociologist of science uses where he talks about distance lens enchantment. The further a knowledge claim gets from the source, the more certain it becomes. And so a lot of what we're doing here is talking about the interface between science at the very, you know, at the coalface, science at the cutting edge versus how the public consumes science. Uh, and the ways in which science gets more certain as you're trying to create a public image or write a new story uh, that people can consume. So I think in some ways that's one of our real uh, problems that we confront. So in the book, I kind of try to lay out different types of expertise. You know, I think, as I say there, the distinction I make in the book is between three types of experts. Uh, one is a physical expert, is something that someone can do in the world. And so the analogy you might say is like a baseball player. Someone can hit a baseball, it's public, it's measurable, you can see a result. And therefore, because it's measurable, you know, people don't have skepticism that you're actually doing something in the world. Uh, the second type of expertise is kind of more interpretation. It's a like a historian interpreting a book or a judge interpreting a law. So it is not a physical act in the world. It's more of a interpretation relative to a body of knowledge. And the last one is kind of what I call uh, wisdom, which is, it's more about integrating knowledge into other sorts of knowledge. Uh, and so I think physical expertise has uh, the most robust and most reliable. And I think it's actually what a lot of scientists do with their day jobs. They're doing experiments, they're making measurements, they're doing mathematical techniques, which is very measurable in the world. Uh, and I think this is why a lot of times you can have confidence that even if some interpretation of the evidence will change, uh, that sort of experimental results or those measurements will persist through different paradigm uh, changes. So I think this uh, sort of knowledge is least um, affected by one's religious perspective. So, you know, if you are being operated on by a surgeon, I don't know if it really makes a difference whether they are a Christian or not. But I do think when you get to wisdom, I do think uh, your background, your religious assumptions do make a difference for how you integrate a particular knowledge into other sorts of knowledge. Thinking of the difference between a physical act in the world versus interpreting a document versus kind of integrating knowledge into other sorts of stories. Obviously, all these kind of typologies uh, fail in some way, but I think it's a helpful, like at least one way of kind of categorizing what separates scientific knowledge versus other uh, sorts of knowledge out there in the world. Yeah, and I, I think it, it raises a question I, I keep coming back to in my role is, is kind of what, what should people really expect from science? Should they, should they really just be expecting information on, on sort of how the world is? 
or is part of my role to give people guidance on what they should do in light of, of sort of how I understand the world to be? Um, should we expect something different from Christian scientists versus just scientists in general? Um, what about Christian leaders who are often expected to give people advice on these you know, sort of scientific issues, including all sorts of other issues, trying to do that kind of integration that you're talking about of developing wisdom. How do we avoid sort of epistemic trespass while also sort of connecting and building science-related wisdom? Mm-hmm. What what is what does that look like? For me, the way I think about expertise or the way I think about science. I think the physical act of science, the, the the doing stuff in the world is what really gives science its power. And I do think on those sort of questions, I don't know that being, at least in the ideal, that being a Christian makes a difference for your experiment or for some sort of result that you get. But I do think when you interpret that experiment, when you try to interpret it relative to a background of knowledge, you know, sometimes background assumptions can play a role. And then when you tell a larger story, the third type of expertise, wisdom, about the place of that particular scientific theory in our understanding of the world, then I do think it makes a huge difference whether you're a Christian or not in terms of telling that story. So there's different levels of thinking about what a scientist is doing is the scientist giving a larger story about our place in the universe versus a scientist doing a particular experiment in the lab and there's a very no- narrow focus of uh, what they're doing. So I think of primarily what you're teaching students when you're there, uh, learning science is you're teaching them this tacit knowledge. Just It's the difference between riding a bike and then explaining to someone else how to ride a bike, you know, just verbally only. And I think often that uh, scientific information that you're, you're, um, that people study is that tacit knowledge. I think Thomas Kuhn has this example in the structure of scientific revolution where he says, physicists often have the experience where they go through an entire chapter and they think they understand everything, all the terms, but yet they can't solve the problems at the end of the chapter. And he says, you could have all sorts of information that you uh, think is true, but if you can't solve the problems, then you're not really a scientist. So it's that ability to do things in the world that I think really characterizes science and gives us its power. Uh, And so I think that's kind of what scientific education is about. Yeah, so, so what should our education in the sciences look like in a Christian institution? And I keep coming back to this because I, I teach, I mean, I teach both biology majors. I also sometimes teach non-majors. And the question, I'm also the core program director, which, so this keeps coming up too, in terms of what, what we're trying to provide for all of our students, not just for students in the natural sciences. And, and it, I just keep coming back to, should we be focusing more on these technical, practical skills of investigation hoping that students will kind of come to understand the nature of science by experiencing it? Um, Or should we be focusing more directly um, on education into the nature of science and things like paradigms and Kuhn? Um, Or should we simply focus on sort of intellectual virtues like humility and uncertainty, tolerance and intellectual vigilance? What's actually going to help us most effectively bring the Christian community into a space where they're, they have an appropriate 
understanding of kind of the the scope and limitations of science, where it has authority and where it doesn't, um, how they should rely on it, when they should rely on it, those kinds of things. What's our approach in educating our students in Christian universities? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of teaching students who are going into the sciences, that's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, they just need to learn the science as uh, any non-Christian would. But I think the real question for me, and I think I see this in your question, is how do you teach non-scientists about about science? That's really a, a difficult question. You know, do you teach them information? Do you teach them physics for future presidents kind of approach? Do you teach different paradigms, uh, kind of a humanities-based uh, approach? You know, I teach like a scientific inquiry class sometimes. And I, you know, I've had to wrestle with that question. I think one mistake that non-scientists often have, who are especially who are Christian, is that they tend to think of scientists as in some ways like philosophers, that they are just coming up with theories about the universe or mm-hmm. theories about nature. Uh, but I do think they often miss the kind of practical dimension of what science is. And so I think helping students appreciate the kind of practical learning that the world pushes back against your theories, that they're, you know, scientific experiments are hard to do well because, you know, nature doesn't always cooperate so well. I think that's the real power of science. And I think when you have a experiment that works well, that will persist through whatever paradigm changes come in the future, right? So we can, uh, you know, we can use Newtonian physics to put people on the moon, even if we don't uh, embrace the Newtonian worldview that was said to go along with it. And so I, I do think trying to help students appreciate that physical tacit dimension of science is an important one, uh, because I do think, at least in my experience, it helps them respect or have, I guess, a healthy respect, maybe is the way to say it, of the uh, work that scientists do. I, I mean, I agree. Like, I, I think it's interesting. Um, one of the things that's most reassuring to me about science is that when we have assumptions that lead us to models and lead us to um, have a particular understanding of things, and then we try to actually do something with it, you know, reality is sort of constantly pushing back against our models and constantly pushing back against our assumptions, forcing us to reevaluate, forcing us to to correct. And some people see that and they just see it as, oh, science can't figure itself out. Whereas I see it as, no, we're actually getting getting a clearer and clearer picture of, of what's going on. We're getting more and more evidence um, is, is being incorporated into the models that we're using. When a model doesn't fit, we have to reevaluate. I, I, to me, this is, a, this is a, a beautiful part of being within this this whole way of reasoning about the world and and it's what gives science its credibility it's what leads us to reliable both conclusions and also to reliable technologies i mean the fact that we have computers that we can be doing what we're doing right now it would have been mind-boggling to people a hundred years ago at the same time people often point out you're making all these assumptions we need to, to be aware that we may have some unorthodox assumptions. Are there assumptions that uh, as Christians, we should sort of hold unassailable? Are there certain assumptions 
that we should never make as we're working in the scientific field? I guess that seems to be an important question for a lot of a lot of people, both people who are very pro-science and people who are sort of anti-science. They'd love to know, like, what are the assumptions we should we should hold and what are the ones we should never hold? In general, I would not favor the idea that there are some unassailable assumptions. There's some beliefs that we just put it in a safe and lock it up and we can never ask questions about it because uh, that would be unpious or anti-Christian or something. So I hold all sorts of beliefs that I think are, I can't imagine giving them up. You know, the earth goes around the sun or that my family loves me. But if there were evidence to come forth that I would need to examine, to re-examine those uh, assumptions, I think I should be open to it. I think that's what it means to be uh, in intellectual environment is to be able to ask questions about any of your assumptions if someone comes with an argument against it. Uh, and so I tend to think that there's some beliefs. I, I don't imagine giving them up, but I don't want to say that they're beyond limits of, of questioning. I think also I found because of that, I can still hold on to some beliefs, but they actually become deeper. Like, you know, I can think, for example, that the Bible is authoritative in, in kind of my life, but it means something totally different to me now than it did 20 years ago, because I've been able to ask questions about assumption and go deeper uh, along the way. And so I tend to think of knowledge. I think there was a, a philosopher in the 20th century compared it to like being on a boat at sea and you're trying to repair the boat as you go along. So any part of the boat you can repair at any point, but you can't do it all at once. You have to hold something certain as you repair that little part of the boat. And so I, I tend to think the same thing in terms of knowledge. There's some things you hold certain for the moment because you're trying to examine a certain issue, but then if you need to examine an assumption to uh, make an argument or to respond to somebody else, I think that's a good thing. That's part of what it means to give a reason for the beliefs that you hold. I think that's really interesting, this sort of um, confidence and humility at the same time, right? Like you, you can be confident at the same time you're willing to continue to re-examine. And I, I think that requires to really sort of think about what's underneath getting you to a point where you're confident enough to humbly engage questions rather than wanting to just hold so tightly to your certainty. I've been trying to decide whether being an expert yourself actually in an area makes you more or less likely to trust experts in other areas. That is sort of you've gained enough through experience, you've gained enough confidence in your ability to make good decisions in one area. You tend to kind of give people more, more respect or out of a kind of mutuality of experience that your experience parallels their experience. Um, but I've also sort of wondered, are we just sort of maybe also just educating some people in particular ways to give them that kind of confidence? Or are we sorting people that people who don't uh, trust institutions will never develop that kind of confidence and humility? What's underneath this ability to be both humble and confident, to trust experts in fields other than your own? What do you think of that? I think it would be a mistake to say that only somehow uneducated people tend to be um, vulnerable to misinformation or vulnerable to uh, conspiracy theories. When you do surveys of people with like scientific literacy, oftentimes the people with the most 
skepticism actually score higher on the scientific literacy scales because they're interested. They know all sorts of details about science because they're trying to poke holes. So I had a, a, a friend actually who has a PhD um, in the humanities, but he thought 9-11 was an inside job that the government had, had done 9-11. And I mean, he could tell you all sorts of details about the melting point of steel, about all sorts of physics of falling buildings that I had no idea about. But, you know, his knowledge, I would uh, argue, was not really translating into wisdom about how to like, evaluate uh, the problem. And so I think oftentimes when we educate people, we're not just giving them information. You know, in my classes, at least, all the information that I can give them, they can go find it on YouTube. What I'm offering to them uh, in my classes is the ability to make arguments and receive arguments back. And so uh, when people have had the experience in academic life to have someone critique you and actually change your mind about something and recognize that you don't know everything and that, you know, a little bit of humility that comes from uh, other people giving good arguments against you. I think that's a big part of the academic experience. It's the ability to recognize uh, that you need other people to know things well. Oftentimes, if you are just kind of a lone ranger and not participating in a knowledge community, you you know you often don't know what you don't know. You you don't realize all the assumptions that you're making. And so, educated people because they often participate in these institutions can have learned that lesson through that process. But just because you're smart, just because you know a lot of information, does not mean that you will avoid misinformation or holding very unreasonable uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah. One of the most important contributions, I think, in your book is the way that you talk about these communities of knowledge, uh, communities of critical thinking, and the importance of relying on others besides just our own individual abilities to discern what's true. And there's this line, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something from your book. You say that if we abandon the communal pro- project of knowledge, we unwittingly contribute to the anti-Christian idea that the self is the ultimate authority for determining truth. And then you go on to write that we're still, we also can set ourselves to fall victim to charismatic outsiders who build their platform, like we've talked about, on the rejection of mainstream views, but they aren't accountable in any way to any rigorous system of checks and balances like you find in a learning community. So can you say more about that, supporting and building robust institutions, even if we know that our institutions are far from perfect? What makes for a robust institution, a robust community of critical thinking, and how do we cultivate them? Yeah, I think what you said about um, realizing your own limits is an important part of the step of learning and growing and maturing uh, in the faith and realizing that uh, you can cherry pick experts and you can cherry pick all sorts of information out there to support your own biases. And so in order to avoid that, what we need is a institution, ideally, to help us push back against our own assumptions and push back against our own uh, mistaken beliefs. And so the analogy that I um, refer to in the uh, in the book is the legal system. I mean, this is how another system institution of knowledge is set up where you have this space to make arguments with each other. You have rules of evidence. You have rules for what governs 
what makes a good argument versus what makes a bad argument. And you allow people to hash it out. And so I think in the same way, the, the reason why we should trust experts is not because they're infallible, not because uh, they know everything, but because they've gone through this process, ideally, of arguing with other experts and coming out and, and speaking for the community, um, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of the community. And so I think a good institution has uh, the ability for different sides to argue. You know, I think it's actually, if you look at a community and it's only consensus, it's actually a bad sign. You need healthy argument. You need communities where people are really pushing back against each other. You also need a uh, institution that's open to multiple points of view, has a lot of intellectual diversity, and it's not a top-down process where uh, you have to abide by some uh, line in order to get a job, but it has a real openness to argument. When you have these sorts of characteristics in the intellectual community, I think you could be more confident in the uh, determinations that come out of that community. It doesn't mean it's infallible, but I think, you know, if you are going to trust, say, for example, that uh, physics says the world or the universe is has a certain dimensions, has a certain, there's this many galaxies or this many black holes or these sort of things. The reason why you believe it is because there's a community that stands behind that knowledge uh, that has gone through this process. And so I think in general, uh, we need these sort of communities to uh, vet our knowledge. And I think actually that the Christian community, especially uh, conservative Christian communities have actually done a very bad job of setting up these institutions. We're often uh, suspicious that institutions are more about power than about finding the truth. But I think the lesson, one of the lessons I took from my research for the book is that if we're going to really know, we need these robust institutions that help us uh, sift through the knowledge to determine what's a value versus what is not a value. I, I love the, you know, the idea that disagreement is actually really important. Um, I, I've actually, in our intro seminar for our biology students, I've actually said that that disagreement can actually be a form of love, that being able to articulate what you think and articulate what somebody else's think, somebody else thinks, and to be able to sort of uh, look at how those two things articulate and to treat other people's understandings with with a, a deep respect, I think, um, one of the most profound things people desire is to be understood, even if they're wrong. They 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 can appreciate the fact that you you took the time to hear them, to actually be able to articulate what they're thinking, and then to bring your own thinking uh, into conversation. One of the things that I've I've struggled a lot with is how do we cultivate a desire to engage uh, other people's thinking. So a lot of times. I've spent a tremendous amount of time and energy engaging uh, engaging arguments that ultimately uh, fall apart. I, I feel like there's a, a group out there who are taking advantage of this idea that we're all arguing and should be arguing and disagreeing in good faith and simply only bringing their voice into the conversation. Anybody who disagrees with them is is 
trying to exclude them. And if you critique their arguments, then you're not part of the conversation in an appropriate way. While I love this idea of disagreement and and that that's an important part of our, our educational process, I also think there are a lot of people who are abusing that model to insinuate themselves into conversations where they really have no place. Yeah, I would agree. There has to be boundaries of argument, right? So scientific discoveries, scientific experiments, there's not one meaning that you can just read off of them. There's always multiple ways of interpreting evidence, interpreting theories, of interpreting uh, what science says. There's always multiple ways of interpreting, but that doesn't mean that anything goes. That doesn't mean that uh, just because there's multiple ways of reading astronomy doesn't mean that you can come in and say that the Earth is the center of the solar system. There has to be limits of uh, what is allowed in a community. Otherwise, there'll be no progress. There'll be no ability to progress as an intellectual community because you're always refighting the same uh, fights over and over and over again. And so there has to be limits. Uh, and the issue is how do you determine when someone is abusing the process and bringing in uh, arguments that have always already been in some ways ruled out by an intellectual community? And when is it a good faith effort to kind of push the boundaries or or make a new argument that that might be true? Uh, And oftentimes, uh, that's a question of judgment by the community itself, you know, whether, you know, peer review, whether something deserves to be published or not. But I do think outsiders to intellectual communities oftentimes see exclusion of their own preferred perspective of evidence as, of bias, when in fact, I think it's actually evidence that the intellectual community has done its job. It, we've already settled that for now, and there's no reason to revisit it because we don't have new evidence to um, reopen that case. And so, yeah, it's it's a fine line between exclusion versus allowing multiple perspectives in a community. You know, this brings us to this question of, of inviting other people into the conversation. Uh, I think we've we've really been trying hard to make science transparent. And I, I wonder if that's actually counterproductive Uh, When everybody sort of sees the sausage being made, uh, I'm not sure that builds trust. Maybe it undermines it. Part of this might connect to that idea of the self-correcting nature of science. People want things to be certain. Um, You know, I find that, again, I find that reassuring, but other people don't. Uh, But the other thing it does is it it presents information uh, to people who, who maybe don't actually have the ability to interpret it or interpret it well. It opens up the ability for people to cherry pick uh, specific little bits and pieces of, of arguments and construct their own narrative out of it uh, in ways that are that are outside of sort of the normal science in the Kuhnian sense. What do you what do you make of that? How do we navigate this idea of being both uh, transparent um, and inviting, you know, inviting constructive uh, disagreement versus opening ourselves up to any random narrative being constructed from uh, the the information that we're putting out there? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult uh, question, especially because we you know we live in such a politicized age where no matter what you say will be taken and misconstrued in some ways. 
I don't know if I have a great answer, but I think my intuition is that it would be a bad thing to give up uh, transparency. I think in some ways that's why intellectual communities work as they do, is that they uh, try to make public arguments and that other people can make arguments against that. And if there are people outside the community that will twist that in, in uh, directions that are not really fair, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure really what the alternative is. I think my intuition is to help people uh, see science and recognize that it's not always going to be certain. And I think uh, my intuition in terms of what science offers the public is that uh, there's a term that I think someone actually wrote a book called uh, science is honest brokers. So it's not that scientists tell the public how to apply this information. But what it does is it offers certain options, certain possibilities, certain uh, predictions for how the future might go given a certain circumstance. And that needs to be taken on board and, and uh, considered by politicians and others and a political process. And so I think that the more that scientists could be honest brokers of the information they have, of the assumptions they're making, of the, the uncertainties that they have, uh, the more it generates trust, even though there are folks out there that no matter what you do, they're not going to trust you and uh, misuse that information. So uh, in general, I, I think I would lean towards the transparency um, side of things. Well, Josh, sort of as a last question, uh, while your book wants us to take scientific expertise seriously, um, you also point out that scientific experts can also be guilty of going beyond the limits of what science can do. You have a chapter, What Scientific Experts Cannot Tell Us. And so I wonder if you could maybe finish up by telling us some of the boundaries as you see them. Uh, what are some of the things that science can and can't do and things that science can and can't tell us about the world? There's a phrase that um, the rabbi Jonathan Sachs said one time that really resonated with me. He says, uh, science takes things apart to see how they work, but then religion puts them together to see what they mean. And so I think that science is really good at certain dissecting things into parts and trying to explain things through uh, re reproducible phenomena that are governed by natural law. So it's really good at, you know, uncovering the organs in your body or uh, molecules or something like that. But then when you get to questions of why and the, what motivates humans, oftentimes those questions are not, we're not looking for a causal answer. We're looking for a reason answer. Why does it have to be this way? Why did you act this way? And if we try to reduce everything to just causes, if if the reason why I love my wife or my family is just chemicals in the brain, then I think, I think as C.S. Lewis said once said, the whole enterprise collapses on, in on itself because the very people doing the scientific inquiry are no longer people. They are just uh, a chemical reactions in some ways. And so I do think as science gets into questions of human nature and questions of what motivates us and how we should treat each other, science becomes much more speculative. And I think, um, especially with the human sciences, I, I look to them less to give universal theories of why humans act the way they do and more particular questions that are much more tractable uh, to give empirical evidence for. And so I think for me, I think Christians often fight with science on 
questions like the age of the universe and things that are just, you're not going to win that those sorts of arguments. Those are the things that uh, I think theology really doesn't uh, have much to offer to answer those questions. But I do think in terms of questions of human nature and questions for why we live and what we live for, those are things that uh, theology does have something to contribute to the conversation. And so I think being more discerning about what science can offer those sorts of questions is a uh, good place to kind of, as a consumer of science, to think more about. So it's not that we're science telling science what to do. It's more that we're recognizing the boundaries of science, what lies beyond the ability of science to answer well, at least in our current iteration of science. And so that's an important part of the interdisciplinary dialogue process that goes on uh, between theologians and scientists. The book is Redeeming Expertise, Scientific Trust, and the Future of the Church. The author and our guest is Josh Reeves. Josh, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. That's been great to be here. Thank you. for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.